0: This morning, one of the things I've been doing uh, when this whole thing with COVID broke out, one of the things that I was encouraging myself to do and encouraging my clients to do and encouraging you to do, if you've been watching and following at all, is to use this time to sort of reset and uh, do some spiritual work. And by that, I mean doing some internal work. And so I've been doing that myself. It's been a good season and a good time for me. Uh, I remember... Last year, at one point, thinking repeatedly, God, I would just wish I could put everything on pause. I would wish I could just put my life on pause and on hold. And uh, so kind of had an opportunity to do that in March and those uh, months after that. And so I've really been doing some deep work on myself. And one of the things, uh, last week, we had a conversation with Derek Brown from uh, the UK. And the thing that really stood out to me that I've been feeding on all week long was when we got to talking just briefly about the garden story again. Uh, those of you that have followed my teaching at all uh, know that I've probably taught, well there's no probably, I've definitely taught out of that garden story, uh, the story of our origins in the book of Genesis more than anything else that I've done, And uh, but a couple things that Derek said, well, one of the things he said that I've, I've tried to bring out before, um, was, did the serpent really lie to Eve? Did the serpent really lie to Eve when he told her that she would become like God, is how some translations say it? And uh, then when God shows up to Adam and Eve and tells them, who told you you were naked? And he brought out the key is that we tell ourselves that we're naked. And so I got to thinking about this whole idea of shame and how debilitating shame is and kind of went back and took a fresh look at that bible story. So I want to take a fresh look at it today. And uh the reason we talk about shame is because in Genesis chapter 2 right before that story it says that both the man and the woman were in the garden and they were naked and not ashamed. Now, at the risk of rattling you too much and maybe sharing too much because I have a tendency to do that, um I want to go a little bit into the Bible, because I think, and, and what I mean, not just a Bible passage, I want to go deeper into the story by giving you the some background that you won't hear in churches, you won't hear anywhere else. If you go to take a seminary class or a philosophy of religion class in college, you'll probably hear some of this. Uh, you definitely get this the first year of seminary, if you went to seminary. But uh, it's very, very clear to us that Moses did not write the first five books of the Bible. It's very clear that he didn't. There's a number of textual arguments that you just cannot get around. People will dismiss them. I was talking to an individual this week that wants to cling to a fundamentalist view of the Bible and anytime I would bring something up, he would just say, well, I went over that in Bible school. I studied all that uh, textual stuff in Bible school, but he would never address the stuff. And that's part of the problem. You see, in Bible scholarship, there is uh, your conservative fundamentalists the ones that are committed to reading the Bible the way we've always read it, seeing scripture the way we've always seen it. The people that are committed to that actually don't engage with the rest of the biblical scholarship world because they can't, because they don't have answers. I mean, there is general consensus and we're talking about something that goes back to the middle ages when we're talking about the writer of the book, the first five books of the Bible. Now I know this is tough also for people that are committed to Judaism who believe, you know, need to believe that Moses received the revelation of the Torah on the mountain. And I'm not saying that he didn't. I'm not saying that he couldn't have passed that down orally. But what I am saying was he clearly did not write the first five books of the Bible. For one thing, in the book of Deuteronomy, he writes about his death and his burial. And at the end of the book there, when he's buried, um, and, and throughout the text, you'll see there are several references to this day, um, no one knows where his grave is to this day, for example. Um, and, and also some of the geography and stuff that they describe in the text are completely different. Some of the kingdoms that they talk about, some of the timing and the dates. So when scholars really sit down and analyze that and look at that, it becomes very, very clear that Moses didn't write the Bible. But even the rabbis in the 12th century and the 10th and 11th century, did not believe or recognize that Moses was not the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, So then the question becomes, who wrote them? And so in the late 19th century, I forget the guy's name. It's it's not important that you know that. um, But he was able to identify at least three different authors, and scholars now agree that there are at least four different authors whose stories are told throughout the Old Testament or the first five books, sorry, throughout the the first five books, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. (coughs) Excuse me. The reason this is important is because you you have to understand that in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, so that when we get to the garden story, you need to understand that they are two very separate, very different creation stories. It's not one creation story. So what Bible scholars tell us for sure, and what I'm fully convinced of, is that you had different traditions, different stories throughout Israel. Now remember, to be Jewish, you had to belong to the northern tribe. So you had to be from the tribe of Judah or the tribe of Benjamin. But to be Hebraic or to be Semitic, or to be an Israelite, you could belong to any of the tribes from the south. In fact, the south, the ten tribes from the south, were called the tribes of Israel. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because when the tri- when the kingdoms became divided, that's when the editors put together the scriptures. So whoever put together the book of Genesis uh, didn't write it necessarily, but took stories that had been around, maybe oral traditions that had been around, and edited them into one form. And you have in one... Stream of thought within Hebraic culture. A group that refers to God as Elohim. Elohim. And it's believed by scholars. Scholars call that group the the priestly group. I don't say the P group, but <laughs> they, they should call them P. But it's because of their priestly, uh, the priestly group. And they use strictly the name for God Elohim. And we'll get to that in a minute. And then you have another group that uses the term specifically Yahweh, Yahweh for the Lord, and they call that group J. So you have the Elohim group and you have the J or the Yahweh group. Genesis chapter 1 is creation as it's told by the Elohim group. Now, anytime you see I am, here's why this is important. Anytime you see the I am at the end, of a Hebrew transliterated word. Now transliterated means we took it from the Hebrew alphabet which are different characters and goes from right to left and we brought it into the English alphabet <clears throat> which goes from left to right. So when you see I am at the end of Elo anything, Sarah seraphim, Elohim, it's in the plural. And it's important to understand that not every group in Hebraic thought was committed to monotheism. The group that was really committed to monotheism was the J group or the Yahwehist. I'm going to show you why this is important in a minute because I want to reread the Genesis story and look at it differently and maybe even uncover a little bit more of what the author's intention was so that it will help us understand how to set ourselves free from shame as it is. Uh, I mean, today, for us. So I promise this is going to make sense. But in order to help you see it from the Scripture in a way that it can make sense, we have to take a different look at it and maybe deconstruct a little bit from what we were taught in Sunday school. So when your Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, the word there, you can check this in any Strong's concordance, is elohim elohim is a pantheon it is it is plural for god in the beginning the gods created heaven and earth now remember you're dealing with an ancient text now we find out in genesis 1 the earth is without form and void and god speaks god hovers over the waters this is an ancient motif this is an ancient belief in the ancient world it was believed that chaos if you wanted to define evil according to ancient understanding evil existed where there was chaos and good exists where there is order and so the whole point of genesis 1 follows the ancient mesopotamian the ancient near eastern myths and ideas about the earth being created or formed out of chaos, and these monsters, these creatures, these spirits, if you will, that are responsible for chaos and destruction, and then the gods who bring order out of the chaos. So you see God creating everything, and defining it and bringing it into order. And the key here is when God creates man, or the gods, because it's Elohim, plural, So verse 26, on the same day God makes the beasts of the field, day six, day six, he makes the beasts of the field. And then in verse 26, it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. See, it makes more sense now if you understand it's plural. The gods said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created them, created man, or your NIV brings this out better. He created humanity. He created a collective humanity all at once. So God didn't create two lions and two bears and two fish and two doves and have them procreate and fill the earth in the Genesis 1 story he creates them all collectively he created the the beasts the plants all of it kind of as a as a collective so when you get to Genesis 126 he's also saying that all of humanity that humanity was created as a collective not as two people and he says this he says let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion and let him go and be fruitful and fill the earth and then because it's written by priests or it's told this this Tradition comes down through the priestly line. God rests on the seventh day because it's the Sabbath day. So the picture in Genesis 1 is God creates a, a temple out of the entire cosmos for himself. And he puts a priesthood of humanity. He puts human beings collectively created all at one time, not from two people. And puts the divine spark or the divine image inside of him. Ben says that sounds like the archons in in Gnosticism. Uh, Yeah, that's a topic for another day. (laughs) It's interesting, though, that the Gnostics had a better understanding, I think, of the Old Testament um, in in some ways uh, than we do today. Um, But anyway, like I said, that's a topic for another day. So the divine spark is inherently in humanity, created collectively in Genesis one. Now, when you get to Genesis two, you have a totally different creation story. Uh, remember, in the first creation story, man is created last on the sixth day with the beasts of the field, and God rests on the seventh day. When you get to Genesis two, um, it says in verse 4, this is a new story. This is a story told by a different author that comes from a different group. So you could put uh, at the end of Genesis 3.1, you could put the end, sort of. That's the end of that <laughs> creation story. And then you get to verse 4, and it says, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day, the Lord God. Now, when you have the word Lord in your Bibles, it's the word Yahweh. It's the It's the Yahweh version of God. So it's no longer the Elohim, it's Yahweh of the Elohim. It's it's Yahweh asserting himself, basically, as the creator God. So in Genesis 1, creation is a collective effort among the Elohim, among the gods. But in Genesis 2, verse 4, it's Yahweh single-handedly creating. So these are the generations of the heaven and of the earth when they were created. And then the day that Yahweh of the Elohim, or the Lord God, made the earth and the heavens. Now watch this. Every plant of the field before it was in the earth. So it's not in the earth. And every herb of the field before it grew. For Yahweh had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the face of the whole ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here's the point. In Genesis 1 account, man is created last. God creates the vegetation, God creates the animals, and God creates man as the crowning uh, humanity in his image inherently and gives them dominion and makes them sort of the crowning apex of creation. In this Genesis 2 account, it's completely different because the wasteland... Now remember, chaos. the, the, the chaos of the wasteland in Genesis 1 is water. In Genesis two, the chaos of the wasteland is the desert, and the same word in Genesis one, where it says uh, the earth was without form and void, in the Hebrew tohu Wavohu, is used to describe the desert that the children of Israel go out into also throughout the text, but you don't see it because we don't read the Hebrew tohu wohu. So, in the mind of the Israelites, or the mind of the in the Hebraic mind. The waters can be chaotic, and the desert is also chaotic. So you're seeing two different stories that are beginning with the same thing. But in this account, God creates the man first. God creates Adam first, and then the vegetation comes up. And then if you read through the story, it says God forms the animals and brings them to Adam to see what Adam will name them. Now, you got to understand, again, from an ancient perspective, this is going to be important in a minute, From an ancient perspective, when you name something, you finish the creation or you determine its essential nature. So in this account, the creation of the animals is a collaboration between Adam and God. God forms it and Adam names it or completes it. God starts the process. Yahweh starts the process and by bringing them to Adam and Adam naming them, Adam finishes the process out because God's trying to find a helpmeet for Adam. Yahweh's trying to find a helpmeet for Adam. You'll, the one thing you'll discover between the E Elohim author and the J Yahweh author is that Yahweh takes on very much human, anthropomorphic is the term, but very human characteristics and traits. He's the one that gets jealous. He's the one that gets mad. Uh, he's the one that changes his mind in the flood, that he had created humanity, whereas the Elohim is more like we would think of God from the sense of not having those same human characteristics or traits as much. So back to this text. So then God creates the woman from the rib and sets them in the garden and says, be fruitful, or doesn't tell him be fruitful and multiply. He tells him to keep the garden. Now, you also have a temple theme here because in the ancient world, Temples had gardens, and they usually had a statue of the god in the garden. So again, the writer here is saying Eden is like God's garden temple. There was trees, there there was usually a sacred tree in the middle of the garden temple. So, you know, God's uh, the, the writer here is using the same themes. There's chaotic desert, and God forms Eden, or a garden in Eden as his temple, and puts man in there. To keep the guard as a gardener not in his image this is important not in his image he's made from the dust of the ground and the breath of life is put in him but there is no reference in the Genesis 2 story of Adam being made in the image of God because you have to keep the account separate I'll show you why I'm going this way in a minute please don't get frustrated with this just hang with me so then it says in verse 25, and they were both naked, the man and the wife, and they were not ashamed. They were both naked, the man and the wife, and they were not ashamed. And to deal with the word "ashamed" for a minute, because this is where we're gonna we're gonna come to the crux of what I wanted to talk about. But the word "shame" in the Hebrew can mean shame, like we think about it uh in fact it comes from a root that means to be red in the face like from embarrassment but it also has other meanings and one of the ways that it's primarily translated when it's not translated shame 21 times in the king james bible at least it's translated to be confused or to be confounded to be uh, another way that you can describe shame is to be miserable uh to be disgraced All those ideas are there in shame. But I want you to hold on to the idea of confusion or being confused or confounded. So they were both naked and they weren't in despair. They weren't confounded. They weren't confused. Another way this word is translated, and and one of the core meanings of this word, is to be disappointed or to have delay. So they had no disappointment. They had no delay. They had no shame. They had no confusion. Then it says, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, the word subtle here can mean a lot of different things. I'd love to go into that. But it can also mean wise. Uh, in fact, it gets translated as prudence in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, same word where it says seek prudence or seek understanding. Uh, it's the same word. So, your modern, your more modern translations will say deceitful, but the, the old English word subtle comes closer To the meaning and by subtle it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a wisdom that isn't apparent on the surface but you have to look underneath so you could say the serpent was the wisest but now here's the other interesting thing it's also the word naked it's also the word naked if you look it up in your strong concordance it's in, in the hebrew it's the same word they're both naked and not confused Now the serpent was more subtle or more wise or more naked or more open, more transparent than any of the beasts the Lord God had made. And he said, I'm reading from the King James on purpose here. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now watch this. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die, for God knows, for God doth know, That in the day, hold on to that word, in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. He didn't say you'll be like God, like Yahweh. Very important distinction. He said you'll be as gods or as Elohim, as the gods. Polytheistic idea. So the serpent comes in and says, "Yahweh knows, in the day you eat of that tree, you will become like the gods. You will have the likeness of God inside of you. You shall not surely die, but in the day you eat of it." Now, here's the truth, gang. Adam and Eve did not die when they ate at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I know there's arguments says, "Oh yes," but the death process began in them. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. In the story, God had to forbid them from eating at the tree of life so that they would not live forever, which means they were already mortal. They weren't going to live forever anyway. They had a duration and an opportunity to eat at the tree of life so that they would live forever. So you are forcing that onto the text to make it fit your narrative and your story. You are not, you are not allowing the narrative to speak to you. So the truth is they didn't die in the day they ate of it. At least not in a literal sense. And I want you to notice, he says, Yahweh knows in the day you eat of it, that your eyes shall be open, and you shall be like gods. So she goes on, she sees that it's good for food. It's desire to make her wise. She takes the fruit, she eats it, gives it to her husband also with her and he does eat. And it says the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the the cool of the day. The the word day here is so important. Walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called unto Adam and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And God says, Who told you that you were naked? So, it's very clear then that there's this introduction of shame. Uh, that once they eat, once their eyes are open, and once they can see that eyes are on them, this is what's so important. It's not so much that Adam's looking at Eve, or that, that through his own eyes. I'll just take it from the man's perspective. It's not so much that man is seeing Eve, as much as he realized Eve, he, he's seeing himself, and Eve is seeing him, in this state of full openness where she can see every part and every aspect of him. And it's the issue that he has eyes on him because part of the meaning of the word shame is to also to hide from something. So, whoa, you can see all of me. You can see every part of me. I don't have any defense. I don't have any privacy. I'm going to cover myself I'm going to sew together aprons and clothing, and I'm going to cover myself in my height, and I don't want Yahweh to see me in this condition either. That is so key and so crucial to shame. But here's what I want to point out. From a strictly Jewish Hebraic perspective, this story is not about a fall of humanity. It is about an ascension of, of humanity. It's, 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 it's two stories, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, providing a different idea of the beginning and how the earth was formed, but also how man came to carry the divine spark or the divine likeness inside of them. In the Genesis 1 Elohim story, God is, humanity is made from their origin. In the image of God. In the Genesis 2 Yahweh story, man is made from the dust of the earth, not in the image of God, and has to eat at the fruit because God goes on later. Most people, you know, quit reading there. And I probably, I I mean, I did. But it goes on later and says, let's see if I can find it here. Verse 22. And Yahweh said, behold, the man has become as one of us. Yahweh of the Elohim, the Lord God, Yahweh of the Elohim. So here's the idea. Yahweh is set apart from all the other Elohim, all the other gods. So as soon, so they weren't like God in the Genesis 2 story from the beginning. They became like God when they ate at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that now they had free will and choice and they could see from their own perspective. They had self-reflecting consciousness. That's really what the story is telling us. That like the gods, now they had self-reflecting consciousness and they had free will and they had the ability by choice to determine what they became. This is so important. So that from the Hebraic perspective, this is not a fall, this is an ascension. Ben brought up Gnosticism earlier. From a Gnostic perspective, this is not a fall. This is an ascension. Now, the issue, the reason this story is in there, the issue is that humanity awakens to the knowledge of good and evil as a potential. So in other words, one could argue from the story that God had intended that there would be a day that Adam and Eve would eat at the tree, and they ate before they were ready to receive their godhood, to receive the divine spark. And so they, when they did that, they became confused, they started self-reflecting, they became confused, they became confounded, they became ashamed, and they started to hide, or they started to restrict, they started to restrict who they were. Now from a Hebraic perspective, their eyes are opened, they have the ability now to discern and categorize between good and evil. And the answer from a Jewish perspective to this day to Adam and Eve was the law. That at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they got the opportunity to reflect and decide what was good and evil, but they didn't have enough knowledge to know uh, what was good and evil, if that makes sense. In other words, there's a potential by experience And then God gives them the gift of the Torah, the gift of the law, to say, okay, if you choose the good, now that you are divine beings, now that you are capable of making the choice and determining your own destiny, if you will choose the good, you can have the good. If you say no to the evil, and here's where it is in the Torah or in the law. So that's the movement of the first five books of the Pentateuch. It begins with Adam and Eve having the potential and then the disasters that come from that, culminating in the flood, then they try to build a tower. Why? To get above the heavens so that God can't flood them again. And God destroys the tower, confuses the languages, and then you see Abraham, and out of Abraham comes the Israelites who go into Egypt until Moses comes. And the ultimate of it is he gives them the law and says, okay, now if you'll, make, if you'll use your divine essence, your divine consciousness to choose the good and not the evil, then you'll be blessed and you'll go in and possess the land. That's the story that's being told in the book of Genesis when you just let the story speak for itself. Now, what does this have to do with us? I brought this in because I wanted to point out that shame entered in at the moment of awakening at the moment that their eyes were opened they woke up now remember god puts adam to sleep (laughs) to make the woman and when they eat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil their eyes open and they're awake and they see themselves in a different light from a different perspective adam sees his nakedness he sees the fullness of himself and he's concerned that his wife's eyes are looking at him. He's concerned that God's eyes are looking at him. And so he covers and restricts himself. And so here's really what can happen to us. When we, when they ate at the tree, they awaken to a polarity or a category of good and evil. There's good over here. There's evil over here. They, they awaken to a dualism of good and evil. And We are born into a society. We are born into a world of polarities. We are born into a world of differences. We are born into a world that really is rather chaotic with other human beings. And there are forces that cause destruction and oppression. There are forces within humanity that rise up and cause us to oppress one another, cause us to mistreat one another. And and it can be confusing. Moral dilemmas can be confusing because there's a good and a bad in just about everything in a a cause and effect sense. On the one hand, it might be good for you. On the other hand, it might be bad for somebody else. On the one hand, it's good for you. You got your prayers answered that you got the job you apply for a job and you went and you did the interview and God favored you and glory to God God gave you the job right and the 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 or 50 other people that applied for the job or the five other people that interviewed for the job they didn't get the job so what was good for you that you got the job was not so good for someone else who didn't get the job uh you you get the girl and, and she goes and be, goes to be with you, and that's wonderful for you, but the person who lost the girl or had his heart set on the girl and didn't get the girl, that's terrible and evil for him. <laughs> so you can see this dilemma that, 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 that it's not as clear cut as we want it to be, uh, in terms of decisions and ethics. Any of you that have ever played ethical games or, or, you know, where, um, you're, you're in a sort of, ethical dilemma where either way you go, you're going to violate some ethic, but you're forced to make a decision. And so we can see that this idea of the knowledge of good and evil is not as simple and as clear cut as we want to make it. We can say, well, we'll take it from the scriptures. But you know, in Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 23, I think it says uh, in one place uh, that rebuke a fool in his folly, lest he think he's wise. And then the very next verse says, don't rebuke a fool in his folly, lest, uh, you know, uh, y- you catch him like a bear caught without her cubs. Uh, so which do you do? Do you rebuke a fool or not rebuke? I mean, there are two verses back to back. And so it's not just a simple say, well, brother, just do what the word of God says. It just isn't that easy. I'm telling you, after 30 years of living this thing, and most of you know this, it just isn't that easy. But here's my point. When you and I have an awakening, oftentimes what happens is we see yuck in ourselves. We see patterns. When you awaken to your own divinity in that sense, you awaken to the fact that to a very large degree, you are at cause in your life that your life and my life is to a large degree the sum total of the decisions that we've made it's the sum total of the thoughts that we've had the feelings that we've had the actions that we've taken or didn't take the things that we said or didn't say the decisions that We made the opportunities that we took advantage of or the opportunities that we shrunk back from and so if you're really really content and happy with your life, then you know, that's good. But for a lot of us what happens is we see these areas where we're frustrated. We see these areas where we want to change uh, and shame. Shame. Let's talk about the structure of shame. We are fed shame from the moment we come out. Think about this. Think about a child, man. A child is spontaneous. A child is free. A child is uninhibited. Uh, they're not worried about what, what you're, you're, you're thinking about them. They'll take their clothes off. They'll dance around. They'll sing. They're not worried. It's just this spontaneous, curious engagement with life, and out of that curiosity, they will take advantage of just about every opportunity. You could say that they are naked and not ashamed, right? You could say they are naked and not ashamed. But then, you know, something comes along, about two years old, according to Eric Erickson, the psychotherapist, uh, psychoanalyst, you begin to go through a stage of autonomy versus shame. Autonomy versus shame. Autonomy, the ability to act autonomous on your own versus shame. So this tells us that shame inhibits, covers, shuts down, constricts our potential. Because when we become ashamed, we become confused about who we really are. And so we receive messages, you know, guilt, guilt is a different thing. Guilt will say what you did was wrong. And I'm fully convinced if we would listen more to our emotions, if we would be taught to affirm our emotions and listen to our emotions as children, our lives would be in much better place because listen, you can, you can listen to a guilt feeling. You, You can say something harsh to someone and feel bad about what you did. And that feeling can guide you to apologize or to make some repair in the relationship. Once that's been done, that feeling should leave. But shame is different because shame causes those feelings to become a hardwired, internalized habit of blame. Where... The person who lives out of shame consistently believes that they're at cause of the things that go wrong. They can put themselves at cause when things go bad in their life. When things go wrong in their life, it's my fault. It's something that I did. But then they can't put themselves at cause when something good happens. So here's what they'll do. If they fail a test, if they don't get the job interview, let's come back to the issue of the job interview. They don't get, they go for the interview, they don't get the job. <clears throat> I wonder what I did wrong. I wonder what I said wrong. I wonder what, um, if I could have worn something different. Oh, this just never happens for me. Their attribution that they're putting is on themselves. Now, let's say the same person goes and they get the job. This same person, if they have a shame-based identity, man, those other candidates must not have been very smart. Uh, The person doing the interview must have been in a good mood. Let's take a test if you're a student and you're in school. If you flunk the test, oh, I'm stupid. If you pass the test, well, the test was easy. You see it? I'm gonna bring this down to religion here in a minute. So what happens then is is we, we tend to look for ourselves in, look at ourselves in this negative light. We look for the stuff that's wrong in us, we look for the stuff that needs to be fixed in us, we look for the stuff that needs to be improved in us, and we move from that position or from that place. We're afraid of having eyes on us, we're afraid of people seeing us completely for who we are and how we think. And if we are transparent, here's what happens. We'll take a risk, and we will be transparent. We'll take a risk, and we'll flash somebody. (laughs) You're just tuning in. Go back and listen. I don't mean literally. I mean we open our soul. We take the covering off. We open our soul, and we're exposed. And somebody can't handle that aspect of us, particularly somebody close to us, because we've never shown it to them before. They become confused. Whoa, who is this person? What is this about? And maybe they don't respond or react. Maybe you get that look. For some of us, that's all it takes is to look. And it's like, oh, yeah. And we bring that part back and say, oh, yeah, I'm not supposed to feel that way. So so that shame becomes this this habit that we have. That I'm not good enough. That somehow I don't measure up. That there are things that are wrong with me and wrong about me. And this also leads to us shoving things in closets. We won't look at ourselves. There's things about ourselves that we don't want to look at. We want to put ourselves in this light that we're always loving, that we're always happy, that we're always have the victory, right? And and so when we feel depressed, we shove that down and we put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. We we shove that feeling of, of I don't feel good down or we we uh, I'm angry at somebody, I really want to hurt them, oh but i can't i can't i can't I can't I'm bitter at somebody and I resent them, and I don't want to forgive them, oh, but i can't I can't because as a christian i'm supposed to love um, I want to go out and act on my sexual desires, but I can't act on my sexual desires because you know I mean for some people, certain forms of sexual desire are wrong, not just the who but the what. That's that's what the way they were programmed, like what uh, I remember having an argument with someone uh, <laughs> back when we were in the deliverance thing about what they consider to be appropriate for a man and wife to do. And, and if a man and wife engage in certain acts, that's going to cause some kind of demonization. And so so then if those urges come up and you live in that structure and that, oh, I got to shove those things down. Right. I got to shove those things down. And so pretty soon, it's like, man, we just feel bad about ourselves. Now here's the problem. Religion, the Bible, much of Christianity is so shame inducing. Because the issue of shame is I have to hide or I'm going to have eyes on me. And then we're told God has eyes on you all the time. And I used to worry as a kid, is God watching me go to the bathroom? Is my, are my angels watching me go to the bathroom? Are they watching me take a shower? Not, not to, and then, you know, if I was going to be with, with, My girlfriend or, or even heck with my wife, it's like, do I need to ask the angels to, to step outside, uh, while all this stuff goes on? I mean, it's crazy. Religion drives us, can drive us absolutely crazy. And then we say, God is watching everything. God is watching. He's listening to every word. He's, he's watching every thought, every idea that you have so and and this god is going to get you for it because there's a good that you have to choose according to the law and you have to eschew the evil and for every evil act you'll be brought into account on the day of judgment right and then we don't really know we don't really know so so then we say well god's god's going to save you so how does god save you god killed his son god killed his Son. Shed his blood because this God demands blood and then he's going to put that blood on you. I know some of you out there don't know what I'm talking about, but some of you do. So some of you give me support. He's going to put that blood on you and then God, your creator, your source is going to see you through the blood, which means now you don't have to deal with it. You just confess it and God will release you from it. So you don't have to deal with the patterns that are in your life except that it keeps producing guilt. You can hide it underneath the blood and Man, it diminishes your sense of self. And God doesn't cause you to sin. You can't blame it on the devil. The devil didn't make you do it. So you are responsible. Watch the attributions. You're responsible for every evil thing that you do. You're responsible for every evil thought that you have. You're responsible for every lustful thought that you have. But if something good happens, man, don't take that glory to yourself. Give that glory to God. That—that That is by the grace of the Almighty God. That is only by His grace. It is only by His grace that those good things happen in your life. Um, so when bad happens, you don't dare put God at cause because God can't be the cause of evil. And when good things happen, you don't dare put yourself at cause because because then that's taking glory away from this jealous Yahweh, and his eyes are on you, and he's going to get you eventually. And so you're just waiting. So many people living under that, laboring, waiting for the expectation of judgment, waiting for when God is going to get them, waiting when something goes wrong. What did I do wrong? You you see the point? And all of this is an internal structure where the reality is you are telling yourself you're not good enough you are telling yourself that you're don't measure up you are telling yourself that you're bad because you got all these images and you believe that's reinforced by god and you believe that's reinforced by god so this comes down to the issue of experienced identity not who you actually are but the how you experience yourself As who you are how you talk inside your mind about who you are how you feel inside yourself about who you are and most of this has been conditioned in you by society and by experiences but you've internalized it and you keep that thing going you keep that thing going you keep the emotions going you keep the patterns going you keep the images going all of that's inside of you now the truth is only you can do the work to change it. Only you can do the work to change it. A shame-based person will say, if only I had affirmation, if only I'd have had love growing up, if only I'd have had the affirmation, if only I had somebody outside myself to tell me how great I am, then I'd be okay. But the truth is, when you have a shame-based identity, people will tell you you're okay But you still won't internalize it. Classic example of this is someone who has anorexia. Someone who has anorexia, people can tell them, you're not fat. You're not fat at all. And they look in the mirror and what do they see? They see a fat person. (laughs) You're skinny. They can look at the scale. They're skinny. But what do they see? When they look in the mirror, because they cannot internalize. So here's the truth, gang. We create the image of who we are. We create the image of who we are. We create this life script of who we are. We tell ourselves the stories, and we create and build the character out of the stories and narratives in our head about who we are. And then we project that image out. We project it out, and that's what we live out of. That's what we live out of. And we're looking outside ourselves for somebody else to fix it, for some, something to fix it, instead of realizing that we have to be the ones to deconstruct that image of ourselves. We have to divorce that image of ourselves and incorporate a new image of ourselves that we project and live out of. And that is what the Bible talks about when it talks about the temple that is made without hands. <laughs> Hallelujah! <laughs> so I'll get to this in a minute, but but I want to talk about the shame-inducing power of the gospel. The shame-inducing power of the gospel. Now, for a lot of people, the idea that Jesus died for their sins is a powerful um, message of love. For a lot of people, the idea, the idea, the concept behind the blood of Jesus is that that blood can cleanse them. From these images and from this guilt and from this shame. And there are there are a lot of people that can take that frame to themselves and they can deal with their guilt by putting it under the blood. Now, I'm not sure that corrects the pattern in their life that caused that action to occur in the first place. Not sure it does that. But it can deal with shame. But for a lot of people, and I was definitely one of these people, the idea... That my creator, that my source, that the one that dropped me here, I didn't choose to be born. I didn't choose to make myself. I didn't choose to be white. I didn't choose to have brown eyes. I didn't choose to be tall or thin or, or awkward. I mean, I was awkward as a kid. I was not a good athlete. I still to this day do not have good hand-eye coordination. I was not smart in school. I didn't choose any of that stuff. Uh, you know, I had parents that were dysfunctional. I didn't choose that stuff. And all that stuff's forming my my identity and God chose that for me. Now, I know some of my new age friends will come back and say, no, your soul chose that before, whatever, and maybe that's true. But I'm telling you what my experience was. You you call it my pre-awakened experience. Call it my shame-induced experience or shame-based identity. Because in Christianity, we weren't taught that. We weren't taught that we had any choice in any of that stuff. And it wasn't the result of our karma or whatever other people out there think that try to explain why bad things happen or why we are and get meaning out of life. I'm talking strictly from the book and from the Christian perspective. So then, so I didn't choose this stuff. And I have these urges inside me that the church is telling me, is wrong it's wrong i mean just read the sermon on the mount and the two primal urges that we have because we are beasts we we are animals we were made on the sixth day we were made on the day that the animals were made and we have these animal instincts within us to survive which leads to violence and to reproduce which leads to sex so we have those animal urges, and as a young man, as a teenager, both those urges are, 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 are there. And Jesus said, if you, if you call your brother a fool, uh, you've already murdered him. Well, I've got the instinct to want to kill somebody and want to call him a fool and want to put him in a place and want to hurt him to make myself feel better. And if you look at a woman to lust after her, in your uh, mind, you've already committed adultery with her. In your heart, and yet I'm biologically wired, particularly as a teenager, to have a hormonal, natural, sexual urge when I saw girls. And so here I have these forces alive in me, and God's going to get me for them. But here's the good news. God killed his son. God killed his son as a blood sacrifice so that he could forgive you. And now he sees you through the blood of his son. He sees you in Christ. He sees you through Christ. Which all that does is put a fig leaf on me. It's just a different fig leaf. Even people that 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 they'll show that Yahweh put skins. They'll say that's the first animal sacrifice. He demanded blood and covered their shame with a skin. So God doesn't deal with us as we are. God plays this 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 righteous fiction with us. He plays this fictional game where he doesn't see me. He doesn't see the parts of me that I really need him to see. I really need him to see these parts of me that are broken and need fixing. I really need him to see the areas that I'm miserable. I really need him to see the areas that I'm struggling with. I really need him to come into my darkness, but I can't let him into my darkness because he's the number one that's the guy that's going to punish me and going to get me and going to shame me for it. And so, oh, the blood. Now think about how shame-inducing that is. I thought I was bad before, but people out here can forgive me. My parents could forgive me for doing something wrong. My siblings could forgive me for doing something wrong. God did not have the ability, apparently, intrinsically, to just forgive me. He had to have blood and has to play this game with me. So now that becomes even more shame inducing because my God, my creator had to kill himself in an act of suicide or had to kill his son in an act of what would you call that? Um, What do you call it when you kill your kid, your only begotten son so that he could feel better about me and then put me under the blood and then still not deal with my stuff, still not deal with my stuff. All right. (laughs) So I went way too long on this first part. Because Aaron, 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 then tell me, what do I do? Here's the key. The awakening, the awakening of your own divine spark is what causes a lot of this conflict. It's You really can't, Feel like you're not good enough if there isn't something inside you that aspires to ascend. But spiritual progress, and I'm going to get down to the crux of spiritual progress and spiritual work. And then maybe we'll talk about this again uh, next week, or maybe I'll do another life later on in the week. It has to do with your consciousness. Shame is about being conscious and aware and focused on what you believe is wrong with you. i say that again. Shame is about your consciousness. It's about being focused on, about being aware and being focused on and giving your attention to what's wrong with you that produces chemical responses and reactions in your body so that you have the feeling of shame. And once you have the feeling of shame hardwired into your body, then your body automatically responds to its environment by, by, by producing shame-based feelings. In this case, your feelings oftentimes are lying to you. Maybe originally those feelings of guilt were telling you the truth. You hurt somebody's feelings, you need to go out and make it right. But once it becomes a hardwired habit, you're automatically responding to your environment and your feelings are absolutely giving you false positives, if you will. They're, They're lying to you. So you have to be able, on some level, to disidentify with those feelings. Now, this is a whole other teaching in and of itself. Um... But you also have to be able to bring in a new image, a new idea about who you are. Now, the danger is that you're going to take that idea from somebody else, from someone other than yourself. And so I'm just going to introduce this and then I'll, I'll go into it deeper another time maybe. But... I want you to think of three aspects of your consciousness. You could call it three different selves. You have your conscious awareness, your social self, your rational self. That's the part of me that made the decision to do the live video to talk about shame. That's a part of me that can reflect on my past, can reflect on how shame-inducing and the power that shame produced because of the way that I heard and processed the gospel. That's my conscious self. Beneath that layer of your conscious self and hardwired into your body, it's what we call the subconscious self. This is the automatic mind. This is the part that gets programmed and just responds. So a person has a shame-based identity. That is part of your subconscious self. But you have a third self that the Bible talks, uh, calls the in Christ self. It's not in Christ in the sense that God can't see you. It's in Christ in the sense that it is what, uh, other spiritual traditions call the higher self. This is the divine self. This is the divine spark that has been awakened that needs to rise or needs to ascend or needs to, let's, let's put it this way. Maybe not rise or ascend. Needs to be integrated. That's a better way to say it. Needs to be integrated into your conscious self. This is the part of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, when God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. And I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. And Jeremiah responds and says, Ah, Lord God, I am but a child and I cannot speak. He had a programming in his subconscious that was in direct contradiction to his higher self, which had been known and formed of God <clears throat> from the preexistent past. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. So there are aspects of our self. You have a divine self. This is the spiritual work and spirituality. And any spiritual work that's worth anything to you is to draw down those higher frequencies. So you could look at it this way. Man was created as a beast and an angel and your conscious self is the bridge between the two or the conscious self is the choosing self that was gained at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the ability to make choices to decide which self and how those selves become integrated or manifested. Is this making sense to you? So good spiritual work, meditation, prayer, whatever is, Elevating your consciousness to those higher divine angelic frequencies, connecting with those subtle energies that are not part of this physical dimension. They're not as dense or as much part of this physical dimension. Drawing my mind up. So, so the one good thing about Christianity to help me was looking at Paul's revelation of who I was in Christ. Seated in heavenly places. Raised up in Christ. Seated in heavenly places in Christ. Set your mind on things above, Colossians 3 says. So every time I would think about who, uh, the potential of who I was in my divine self, in my self that's in union with God, that, that uh, remember I said that shame is is miserable, makes you miserable. The word miserable comes from the word miser. What is a miser? What is a miser? A miser is somebody who has tremendous wealth, but lives like they have tremendous poverty. And that's what shame causes you to do. You have tremendous wealth. Every answer, see, everything that is divine, every, every attribute of God, you already are and is already inside of you. This higher self does not need to be perfected, does not need to be washed in the blood, and didn't need Jesus Christ to die for it. It is eternal, it is an aspect of the divine, it is the divine light, it is absolutely pure and holy and divine energy, and you're not separate from it, and you're not other than it. The problem is, most of us aren't awakened to it. So we don't know how to focus on that aspect. What we end up doing is focusing on the lower aspects of ourselves. When you're shame-based, you're focusing on the lower aspect of yourself. The whole problem with religion, and Christianity, and what we call the gospel, is it causes people to live in bondage because it causes them to focus on the lower aspects of themselves. So when you're stuck in shame, you don't have the spontaneity to express yourself. You don't have the freedom to act against the group consensus. You don't have the freedom. Maybe there's something, a desire that's in your life that you want to do, but your fa- the group consensus in your family says it's wrong. The group consensus in the church says it's wrong. The group consensus in society. So you inhibit yourself from that expression. And perhaps that is an expression that you need to give birth to in the earth, but you're not able to because you're stuck in shame. So shame puts you in bondage and shame restricts the full manifestation of your divine authentic self. And you cannot get that from a preacher and you cannot get that in a, from a pulpit. You cannot get that from sitting there on Sunday morning, and you You cannot get that from a self help book or you cannot get it from the Bible. You have to do the work yourself. You have to be willing to go inside and face yourself and ask Spirit, ask the Holy Spirit, ask God, ask your guardian angels. Listen, you came here with a spiritual team that wants to help you awaken. If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in the divine spirit, if you don't believe in guardian angels and other beings and entities that are sent to help you and support you, then don't you have no spirituality, none, no spirituality at all. You are what the Bible calls carnal and it's in your mind. So start affirming. You know what? I have I have divinity within me. I have divine potential. I have divine capacities. I don't have to wait on God. I can awaken my own divine spark and my own divine abilities. Um, I have a holy guardian angel that's with me to help me to awaken. I have a higher self that I can trust, that I can connect with. That's where this begins. And you start drawing those energies down, drawing those energies down, drawing those energies down. And when those energies come down, they are like light, and oftentimes now you see the mess that you've created. You see, oh my God, all this stuff I was blaming on everybody else, I've been the one that's been creating it because I haven't believed in myself. I've been the one that's creating it because I believe these shame-based limiting ideas and feelings and beliefs that I have. I didn't go out and make a better future for myself because I was afraid of what would happen. I was afraid I wouldn't have a self if I didn't have this shame self. I was afraid what I would do if I had to stand on my own. For me to come out, like I've been wrestling and working this stuff in my life for a lot of years, especially the last four years, but for me to come out on Facebook, I remember the day that I did it, came out on Facebook and said, this is who I am now. This is what I've studied. This is what I've learned. This is what I believe. This is the damage that Christianity has done to my life. This is the damage that it's doing to other people's lives, and I'm going to give voice to something else, something else that has really helped me, something else that has really empowered me, something else that has really changed my life, but I know I'm going to be condemned to hell, I'm going to be called a false prophet, I'm going to be called a false teacher, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be challenged, I may not have a single friend, my family may come against me, I have no idea, but I, and and so that would prevent me from giving voice and stepping out, but the The moment I made the decision and I remember when I did and I got on Facebook and no kidding within five minutes a preacher who was a friend of mine that I had not heard from in four years messages me and says brother I'm concerned about your soul and I've been talking to these other preachers and they're concerned about your soul preacher from Texas an evangelist Tim Grisham yeah I'm calling him out who I don't even know and doesn't even know me got with members of my own church. A man of God got with me- Tim Grisham got with members of my own church. One of them battling a severe chronic illness and said the reason you're sick is because you're going to that church. Other people, other pastors in this city that don't have the guts to call me. Have never called me, never messaged me, but talk about me behind my back. And you know what? I expected it. And I'm okay with it. Because you know what that showed me? I had the strength to not let Tim Grisham or other pastors out there or other people that wanted to condemn me to hell, Mike Beecham comes on my page and writes a list of how I'm going to hell and there's no repentance for me to tell my entire audience. All these friendships that I lost, Phony friends. But you know what? Praise God. Because I had the strength to speak up and to speak out and to speak my truth and to not be controlled by that stuff because I got free from that shame-based stuff. All right. Whew. I hope that helps you. I-, I, want, I want to inspire you. You are more than what you think you are. You have a wealth inside of you and you can take risks. You don't have to believe those feelings and those patterns that are keeping you blocked and keeping you locked up you are more than what you think you are that's that's the higher self you bring that energy of the higher self, that perfected self, and you bring it down. And then it exposes this stuff down here, right? It exposes this the, the darkness and, and and the patterning and the choices. And oh my God, I lost my soul. Religion will make you lose your soul. I lost my soul to Christianity. I lost my soul to the Christian evangelical community. Because Jesus said you could gain the world but lose your soul. What is my soul? My soul is my authentic self. My soul is my alive self. My soul is the part that's coming from the breath, if you will, of Yahweh, the breath of God, the inspired, the inspirited self that feels alive, that's excited, that life isn't predictable anymore. And I wasn't making my choices. I was making the choices that the Christian community told me I had to make. I was making the choices that my so-called spiritual fathers were telling me I had to make. I was making the choices that the people that wanted to pick my pocket and control me were forcing me to make. And then I was reproducing that in other people until I woke up. And so this is why I'm telling you, there isn't a pattern for you. Your pattern for you is in you. It's in your higher self. But you gotta get to know yourself. You gotta get to know yourself. And you gotta release that person. You gotta let that person out of jail. You gotta let that person out of the chains. You gotta get past who are your jailers? Who are the people you're most concerned about disappointing? Those are your jail keepers. Those are the ones standing guard at your cell that don't want to let you walk out or let you walk by. And you will, you will negate your own desires in life. You will negate your own voice. You will negate your own truth to please those people. And that's all the power of shame. And I want to encourage you and I want to speak something to you and I want to spark something inside you that will empower you to know that you can move past that and you can move out of that. I wanted to get into Revelation and the Mark of the Beast and all that, but I'm going to have to save that. That's Doug Wentz's Revelation anyway. I should let him just share it. Uh, Doug showed me something incredible. Um, but anyway, so you have these lower natures. So you have this this sort of beastly sort of instincts and stuff, but that's also divine, and that's also perfect. <clears throat> it just has to manifest itself through your conscious self in a way that does no harm to other people. Now, that's not realistic because, like I said, you get the job, the other person doesn't get the job. Good for you, bad for them. (laughs) But you you get the point. You get the point, right? Um, I mean, I don't know if it's possible to to live your life and do no harm. Uh, I'm I'm just not convinced that it is. Uh, So anyway, does that help you? I I hope that that awakens something in you. But but understand, you have these, these... animal beastly like instincts you have these angel-like energies and then you have the job the spiritual work is the marriage that's the marriage supper of the lamb that's the bride coming down out of heaven to marry the spirit with matter to marry the angelic to the beast to marry if you will the angel to the demon so that it becomes balanced and integrated and you can live a life that is good to you now and good to your future self because you're not doing something stupid. See, if I just take those instincts and just go act on those instincts of whatever they may be, I can do really dumb stuff and have done really dumb stuff that caused problems for my future self. If I go, you know, curse out my coworker, curse out my boss, because I want to, because I'm feeling it instinctually and I'm just being authentic and to hell with them, then it might be to hell with you later on down the road, (laughs) you might be handing off a problem to future Aaron, uh, that, that has to deal with that boss down the road or has to deal with that coworker down the road or has to deal with total isolation from family and whatever, because the way you treated them down the road, um so it's the integration so please 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 there is no part of you that's bad there is no part of you that's wrong there is no part of you that is inherently evil there is nothing about you at all that is inherently evil there is no nothing it's all inherently just energy it's neutral it's not even good it's not good or bad it's neutral but this awakened consciousness has to decide what parts of it are beneficial and what parts of it are destructive so that you can be integrated, so that you can be integrated, so that the higher vibrational self that is divine, that has the ability to transcend, has, here's, here's divine abilities. You ready? Omniscience, the ability to know things that you wouldn't otherwise know through natural means. You have that capacity within you omnipresence the ability to be anywhere at any given time you actually have that power within you heck the CIA had a group of remote viewers that were trained in remote viewing they could view uh, like remote spies <laughs> that that was a top-secret program that they had during the Cold War so um, you have that capacity as a human being for omnipresence and then omnipotence or power—the ability to do miracles, the ability to do things that transcend the natural, to um, to to defy the aging process, to defy sickness and disease, to um, defy th- th- those those types of limitations
1: as well we
0: have all of that within us and that's all in that higher self and as we draw our consciousness to those things and draw down those realities into our lives by doing the real work on the inside and then looking at our shadow self the parts of us that we don't like and learning how to integrate learning how to marry uh the the heavenly and the earthly and integrate it into the conscious self then the conscious self is able to choose and give expression to that self In your life i had to make the choice to come out of my closet spiritually i had to count the cost (laughs) to say this will be good and evil this will be good for me because i'll be being authentic this will be good for me because i think there's people out there that want to hear this that are experiencing what i've experienced that have the questions that i have and need to hear what i have to say and it's gonna be evil because I'm gonna have people like these, these guys that suddenly became my spiritual fathers that don't even know me, that have to set me in my place or think about the evil of someone, think about the evil of someone who goes to a person struggling with a disease, struggling with their health and gives them the flippant answer, the only reason you're struggling is because you're listening to that guy. What kind of hate, what kind of threat, what kind of evil is in a person that does something like that? That is not a man of God. That is not someone who represents the gospel. I don't know why I'm putting that out there. I'm just, I don't know why I did that. All right. Hopefully this was helpful for you. (laughs) I want to come back and talk about this again. I may do that later on in the week so be watching my page i may do a live later on in the week if you share this thank you for sharing it if i offended you um maybe take a look at what is resisting what is it inside you that's resisting something that i said uh maybe that'll reveal something powerful um to you about yourself or a truth um so if that's the case just feel that resistance and maybe examine that if it's been a blessing to you i'd love to hear about that uh, as well. And thank you for taking the time to watch this today. Happy Father's Day to everybody out there. Um, I definitely got my preach on uh, today. So anyway, love you. God bless you. Um, I can't wait to go back and look at and read the comments. Thank you for watching.